Good morning. Today's the last in a series of sermons on work that Brad began a couple months ago. <clears throat> We've learned a lot, at least I have anyway. Brad has told us a lot of thought-provoking things and has had a lot of gentle but needed prodding for all of us, no matter what kind of work we do. So it's been a good series. It's on the web, uh, the recordings, if you're interested in, in maybe listening to some of them again. There are two things left to talk about that I think we should cover before we finish up the series. So we're going to look at them today. And actually, both of them are answers to this question. Can I not work? Like, is there any way to kind of get out of it? And I'm not talking about lazy people, people who just don't want to work. That I'm not, I'm not talking about. I think we can answer the question of laziness very quickly. God didn't create you to be lazy. It's pretty much that simple. God didn't require you to do the minimum amount required. He created you to change the world. That's what he created you to do. That's one of the things, the most joyful things that Brad said in one of the early sermons on work. He said, we're called to find something in the world that needs fixed and then go fix it. I loved that. A couple days after that sermon, I was walking downtown and I saw a crew of guys who were smoothing the concrete on a brand new sidewalk. Watching them made me actually truly joyful. I actually stopped and watched them because they were so good at it. I mean, it was not to you know, overplay it or anything, but it was a gorgeous sidewalk. It was perfect. And I thought to myself, those guys are changing the world. Once, it was, once upon a time, it was unsafe to walk on that block. Maybe because of the proximity to traffic, or maybe because the old sidewalk was all cracked up and maybe you'd trip on it. Maybe there was somebody who walked on that block one time who, who was, uh, they had difficulty walking or they had difficulty seeing, and maybe they, maybe they had a tinge of fear as they walked along through that place. And then these guys came along, and they built a new sidewalk, and it was gorgeous and perfect and made it safe. That's the kind of thing I think God's called us to do. I paused in that moment and thought, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to go change the world. And there's no laziness, there's no room for laziness in that responsibility. Yes, we need rest, we need rejuvenation, but we can't put off changing the world. It needs changed. And it's a beautiful calling, and I pray that God blesses us all in, in pursuing it. So I'm not talking about people who don't want to work. I'm not talking about laziness. I'm talking about people who feel so oppressed by their jobs <clears throat> or by their life in general, that they wish that they could just opt out, opt out, that they wish they could just take a step back, put it all down, and walk away. Have you ever heard, of some, have you ever heard someone describe their life as a hamster wheel? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. That person who says that to you, they don't want their life to be 10,000 successive episodes of Wile E. Coyote versus the Roadrunner or Pinky and the Brain. Nobody wants to live out 10,000 successive episodes of Pinky and the Brain. We want to get off the wheel. We want to shake up our lives and do things differently. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. We want to feel like life is meaningful and beautiful. Is that a bad thing, you see? Is it a bad thing to want to opt out of kind of the, the dreariness of it? Well, first of all, I think we need to note that this is not something new to our time and place and history. This is not something unique about 21st century American culture. <clears throat> I think we often feel like it is. Oh, things these days are just so crazy, right? We often describe how busy and chaotic our civilization is, and we wish for the simpler times of the past. But I, I think, I wonder, if, I wonder if every civilization in history hasn't felt that way, you know? 
I think every civilization in history would have described itself as busy and chaotic and out of control. I don't think there ever was a time when the average man on the street would say, yeah, you know, actually, I'm not very busy. I, I live a rather placid life. You know, I, I feel sorry for the people of the future who will struggle with these things, but we in the past, we don't really, you know. I don't think that ever, I don't think that ever really happened. In other words, the hamster wheel feeling predates the invention of hamster wheels. That's one way of looking at it. So our question today is, can I not work? Is there any way to get out of the crazy grind that is life? I think that's a question that people have been asking for ages. It's not a 21st century question. It's a human question, you see? Well, as you would expect with a question that people have been asking for ages... Many people over the years have tried to do that very thing, tried to pull back, regroup, make more life more meaningful, more controlled. And one way that I'll kind of highlight here today, one way of answering that question that you'll find throughout Christian history is monasticism, the establishment of communities of Christians who have pulled back from mainstream life in order to live more quiet, purposeful lives. There's a whole tradition of monasticism in Christianity. Is that the answer? You see? Monasticism started way back in the earliest days of the church. The first Christians to pull away from the rest of society did so because of persecution. Each time there was political instability in Palestine, groups of Christians would withdraw out into the desert for security. But at about the year 200 AD, something changed. We start seeing people pull away, not to escape danger, but because they want to live differently. They want to live uh, a simpler life. They want to live better. And sometimes they lived like a hermit off on their own, like the, the very famous church father, Jerome, was a very famous hermit. Very, very eccentric. You know, picture a hermit. That was what Jerome was like, except he translated the entire Bible into Latin. Maybe that's not a stretch. But after a while, these people who wanted to pull away started joining together into monastic communities. And these communities were shaped by the writings of the church fathers. Great pillars of the early church, like Basil of Caesarea, or the, you know, the greatest church father maybe of them all, St. Augustine, wrote specifically about what life in a monastery should be like. They actually wrote works on this. Uh, and other major theologians wrote about it in the centuries to come in quite a number of different monastic orders following the teachings of different writers emerge over the years. Two of the early ones that remain today, the Basilian Order of Monks started in 356 AD, and it still exists today. The Benedictines, you might have heard of the Benedictines, they started in 540 AD, and they still exist today. Other early orders are, are less familiar to us because they've since disappeared. Monastic life, was absolutely played a major role in the culture of the Middle Ages. And over a hundred and, about a 150-year period, from the 11th into the 13th centuries, you see six major orders of monasteries, monastic movements start. Some of these names are familiar to you. The Carthusian, the Cistercian or Trappists, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Augustinians, and the Carmelites all started in that era. And then, there, then, then monastic life takes a, a big hit. There's a kind of an era in history in which it goes from being very prominent to be very, more in the background. It diminishes in the 16th century Protestant Reformation. You see, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But monastic movements, despite the, the bump 
from the Reformation, they've continued even into the modern times. And even though they've played less of a key cultural role as they did in the past. There was a, uh, a, a large Protestant monastic movement that began in the 1800s and actually still continues today. Famous Russian author Leo Tolstoy. Do you know War and Peace or Anna Karenina? Tolstoy led a monastic community. Uh, numerous monastic communities were founded in the 20th century, new ones in the 20th century, some famous, like the Iona community in Scotland, Taizé in France, and then there are actually dozens of monasteries in the United States uh, that were founded in the 20th century, including the, uh, a, a rather sizable one in Cottonwood, Idaho. is not too far from us. Some people have even described Francis Schaeffer's Labrie Fellowship and other kind of residential study communities as being sort of like modern-day monasteries. And at different times and in different places, monastic life has looked different, but it usually all has in common several things, like this. An internal culture of simplicity and self-denial, an emphasis on spiritual growth, prayer, and meditation, and participation in a community of other like-minded people. Those are the threads that from the beginning to the end, they seem to run through. Now I suspect that the idea of a monastic life, of pulling away from normal society and going into some kind of community removed from, from uh, normal, normal life uh, would seem very foreign to us. But that's a lot of people over a lot of centuries who have chosen to live that way, right? Why? What was the appeal? What are they after? In each case, they're looking for a new way of life. They wished that their days were calmer, and that they, their lives were less distracted and more meaningful. They sensed that there was a better, more fulfilling life out there somewhere, and they were searching for how to live it. They certainly weren't lazy. It wasn't about laziness, because monastic life is not about placid inactivity. You know, Monks work hard. You could, you could maybe summarize monastic life as, uh, with this phrase, rigorously pursuing good things. And that, I mean, if I put it that way, it has a certain appeal to it, right? I mean, doesn't that sound like a good idea to rigorously pursue good things? Well, let's look at our passage for today. It's in the bulletin. If you want to turn your Bibles, it's, uh, we'll look at the first one just for now. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. So let's read it. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And that's how the monks of old were trying to live. Listen to, the, listen to the things it describes. A love for one another that's ever increasing. Living quietly and meaningfully. Living independently to avoid the slavish commitments that seem to multiply in life. Walking well and doing right by people. That's what that passage just describes. That's the goal of monastic life. And here's the catch, though. This is, what really, this is what really jumped out to me. That's the goal of our society as well. We want the same things. 
Did you hear it? All of, aren't, those, aren't every one of those things something that our culture wants too? Listen, I'll read them again. A love for one another that's always increasing. Isn't that something people today, if you said that on the street, wouldn't the average person say, yeah, we should have that, right? Living quietly and meaningfully. Living independently to avoid the slavish commitments that seem to multiply in life. In walking well and doing right by all people. Now, if we went out there, downtown Boise, and said, hey, does that sound like a good way to live? Everybody out there would say, yeah, that sounds like a fantastic way to live, right? Every political candidate and corporation and local business and homeowners association promises to offer us some kind of version of that list of things. If only we do this, we'll find that, you see? That's what's being offered to us in our society. So we keep voting for and buying and participating. Why? Because that's what we're looking for too, right? That list, that description, that's what we want. It's what the monks wanted, and it's what our society wants, and it's what we want. So that's where I got the title of this sermon. Look at the title there on the sheet. Should we start a monastery? Right? If the monastic life offers the very kinds of things that we in our culture are looking for, maybe we should, we should start a monastery. Is that a better way to live? Is that even a legitimate option? Now, I would guess that your answer, if I, if I stopped you in the hallway today and said, so what do you think? Should we start a monastery? I suspect you would say, no way, right? If I posted a sign-up sheet, and for those willing, and I put at the top, for those willing to leave their old life behind and help me start a monastery, I suspect I'd get very few takers, right? However, while the monastic way of life may seem strange to us today, the ideas behind it aren't strange at all, right? In some shape or form, who wouldn't want this? Who doesn't wish that they could pull back from the demands of life, regroup, reprioritize, and live a better way? Who doesn't wish for that? So here's an example. I did a bunch of research this week on technology-free vacations. Did you know that this is a huge worldwide industry? Technology-free vacations. You can book unplugged getaways to visit resorts in Thailand, surf in Panama, or go on a safari in Botswana. There's a hotel in Costa Rica that when you check in, they lock your phone in a safe deposit box for a minimum of 24 hours before you can get it back. A few hotels in rural Scotland and Wales are advertising as like a, a plus that they're outside cell phone range. Hotel Hanamaui in Hawaii is so tech-free that it doesn't even have clocks in its rooms. Isn't that fantastic? There's no, there's no shortage of uh, tech-free options if you want to go to the Caribbean. For example, the, there's quite a few examples I could list, but the best one, the island nation of St. Vincent and the Grenadines has established itself as perhaps the world's top digital detox destination. They, they're, they're, the, they're considered the industry standard. They, seven night packages start at $3,800 per person and include a guidebook about how to function on a vacation without technology. They have a life coach available on site for advice on how to not let technology control your life. And in one pla- if you stay at this one place, uh, visitors can signal for room service by raising yellow flags on little uh, bamboo flagpoles outside their cabanas. 
That's how you get room service, is you hoist the yellow flag. If you're interested in staying closer to home, Marriott is offering braincation packages at eight locations across the continent. And I found tech-free advertisement for hotels in uh, Big Sur, California, Portland, Oregon, the mountains of Colorado, the Redlands of Utah, and even the Salmon River Rafting Company here in Idaho. So you don't have to go far to find a tech-free vacation. Now, before you consider going to any of those places to unplug and refocus, let me just say this. I am a fun travel companion, and I would be happy to go with you if that would help. I have, I have not vetted that with my wife, but I think she'll be okay with it. No, for real, I mean, as I was getting into it, and I'm looking through all the options, I came to the, I came to the, there's a lot of options out there. There's a ton of this. This is a big business. There's a, there's a lot of money. A lot of people are doing this. Um, more so than I ever expected. And that tells us what? That tells us that this is a major need. Whether or not we, we, the idea of a monastic life appeals to you, there, I bet you there are a lot of us who feel the need to pull back, regroup, and make, more, make life more controlled and meaningful again. So even if the idea of starting a monastery doesn't have much appeal to you, I bet pretty much everyone in this room would be happy to go on one of the vacations that I just mentioned. I bet you if I had a sign-up sheet for that, that would fill up really quickly. But here's the deal. Here's where it breaks down. Okay? The truth is, neither, neither thing really works. Neither thing really solves the problem of life. You see? So if, if you go on a tech-free vacation, that solves the problem for seven nights in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Or, ho- or however long you have until your, your boss says, okay, that's it. That's the end of your vacation days. You know? And then what happens? When all that's over, you have to go back, right? So it's an escape, but it doesn't solve the problem. And the monastic thing, it doesn't really solve the problem either. Monks didn't live laid-back lives, right? I mean, they stayed very, very, very busy with other things. Monastic life doesn't solve the problem. It just exchanges one set of busyness for another set of busyness. So it doesn't doesn't solve the problem. And then there's a biblical reason why I don't think we should go that direction also. It's fitting that today is Reformation Sunday because one of the great emphases of the Reformation comes into focus right at this exact point. It was an idea that had faded over the years before the Reformation, but the Reformers reclaimed and re-emphasized it. Look now at our second passage. It's 1 Peter 2. First Peter 2, we'll read, the whole, the whole section is awesome, but we'll read just verses 5 and then 9 and 10. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's a remarkable description of God's people. 
the, the, the teaching of the Reformation that comes into focus here is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. I wanna, there's a lot of things those verses say. I want to zero in on this idea that we are a holy and royal priesthood. Now, if you were one of the people who originally received this letter and you read that, that would have shocked you. It would have shocked you because it's not supposed to work that way. That's not how the priesthood works. Remember how it's supposed to work. There are special people, the few who were approved to be priests, who were designated to do the things of God, and the priesthood is restricted to them, you see. If anyone else tried to do the things that the priests did, that would be blasphemous. And the person who, who did so would face severe consequences. You see a fantastic example of that in 1 Samuel 13, when King David, Israel's first king, goes and does something that only a priest is allowed to do. He offers a sacrifice. And for that, he is condemned. Only the priest could offer the sacrifices. And the priesthood was, re- was restricted to those few chosen people. But here in 1 Peter, he calls all God's people a holy and royal priesthood. That's surprising. And it's not just here either. It says it elsewhere in the, in the New Testament. For example, in Revelation chapter 1, it says it again in Revelation chapter 5. This is an unexpected turn of events in the biblical story where once only the few people could serve as priests. Now the whole thing has been expanded to include all God's people. That's the, as I said, is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. It was a, a big emphasis during the Reformation. Martin Luther especially wrote a lot about it. Why did the priesthood change to include us all? Why did it go from being uh, the few to the all? Why did, why did that change take place? Well, I think we get the best answer from the book of Hebrews, which examines the entire Old Testament temple system, Israel's worship system. And it looks at the temple itself and the sacrifices and the priest who made them and the high priest. And in each case, Hebrews tells us Jesus is greater than all of it. Jesus is greater than all of it. You see, in Hebrews 7, it it especially says Jesus is a new high priest, one who is different and one who is a better kind of high priest. The old high priests were temporary, after all. I mean, they died. He had one, and then another, and then another. And the writer of Hebrews says, this is calling your attention to the fact that not one of them was good enough, sufficient enough. Not one of them was the one, the high priest. And then along comes Jesus. And he's the one high priest forever. The once and for all high priest. And his sacrifice is once and for all. And he's building a new once and for all temple that he's making out of the living stones of his people, which it says right here in the passage we just read in 1 Peter. That's why the priesthood has changed. Because everything else about the old way of temple worship has changed. A new forever high priest has created a new priesthood to work with him and serve in his new temple. And that new priesthood is us. That's what's going on here. But if we are the new priesthood, what are we supposed to be doing, right? I mean, after all, we don't do the sacrifice thing anymore, right? I mean, and, and we shouldn't because the you know, Hebrews says Jesus was the once for all sacrifice. 
We don't need to keep reenacting the sacrifices. So what exactly is our role as Jesus' priestly project? Well, let's, if we examine what the Old Testament teaches about the role of priests, especially it's really delineated in the books of uh, Exodus and Leviticus, we learn uh, five things that the priests are supposed to be doing. The priests are supposed to be specially consecrated to serving God. The priests are supposed to be representing God's people in his presence. They're supposed to be offering sacrifices to God. They work to reconcile God's people to God and to each other. And the priests have special access to the presence of God. I just want to say we, the new priesthood, we continue to do all those things. Only here's here's the difference. The reformers said that they insisted that priesthood is not our only vocation. You see, it's not as if we're supposed to, hey, by the way, you're a priest now, so I want you to quit your job and go do priest things. The reformer said the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers means that our priesthood is built into whatever work God gives us to do. We're always serving as priests. You're not a plumber. You're a plumber priest. You're not a librarian. You're a librarian priest. You don't work in customer service. You're a customer service priest. You see? That's what the reformers taught about our priesthood. So this doctrine teaches us that we, we don't need to withdraw from the world in order to do what God tells us to do, what he's called us to do, the role he's given us. Instead, we're actually supposed to do the work of the priest wherever we find ourselves. We're supposed to press into the world and be priests. We're not supposed to pull away to find peace and purity and faithfulness and joy and goodness. Our job, the reason God has made you a priest in his new kingdom, is so that you will bring all those things to the world. So let's review real quick the five things a priest does again. Thinking about yourself this time. These are the things that God is calling you to do in your work. Not just in your job, but in whatever work you find yourself doing. Priests are supposed to be specially consecrated to serving God. That is, they weren't just normal people. They were designated by God to do His work. And that's exactly how 1 Peter 2 describes you. It says, yep, that's you now. There you go. Number two, priests represented God's people in His presence. And we do that when we pray for others and when we plead with God to intervene on their behalf. Three, priests offered sacrifices to God. And yes, while it's true that Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all, don't forget that the priests of the Old Testament offered a variety of sacrifices. The atonement sacrifice for sin wasn't the only one they did. It wasn't even the most frequent one that they did. There were others, like the grain offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering, which were acts of worship rather than atonement. And so, yes, we're supposed to continue offering the sacrifices of worship every day. It's part of what we're doing right here, right now. Number four, the priests worked to reconcile God's people with God and with each other. And this is something we still do, especially in the ways in which we speak with each other and serve one another. That's something we're meant to continue. And finally, 
the priests had special access to the presence of God. And if, if, you've, if you've read the account, you know that the death of Jesus tore the curtain that divided us from God in two. And Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that now we can boldly enter the throne of God. So yeah, that's true of you as well. All five of them are something that God has given you to do. That is the work of the priest, and it's our work now. Whatever work God has given you today, you are supposed to do it as his priest. You, actually, the truth is you are doing it as his priest. You might be doing it, uh, might not be, might not be being very priestly in how you do it, but you are doing it as his priest. So the bottom line is God wants you to go and change the world. Not only by building a beautiful, gorgeous new sidewalk. Not only by teaching someone something, or building things, or trading things. You're also supposed to be changing the world by praying for people. By speaking with people. By serving people. And by praising the name of Christ. That's the priestly work he's given you to do. That's something you can do at any time and in any circumstance. And the truth is that those are the things that truly will change the world. Right? So, we'll look at, we'll look at one more thing before we finish. First was our priestly work. The second thing. Our question at the beginning today was, can I not work? Is there any way to get off the hamster wheel? Right? Well, there is one way in our culture that you can do that. And it's if you work long enough and you kind of play your cards right, you can do what? You can retire. We have retirement now. <clears throat> Our present day version of retirement is actually a pretty new thing in civilization. There wasn't anything quite like our current day version of retirement. Uh, like if you go back more than a century, uh, retirement wasn't a thing. You know, you, you kept working as long as you could, and then at, at that point, you better hope you have some family or somebody to take care of you. It's a, it's a very different thing that we have now. So if you're retired, you're part of a very small portion of the people through history. God has privileged you. Thanks be to his name. Now I just want to say this, kind of tying it with what we just said about priesthood. Retirement is a calling God has placed on you, just like the work you used to do. It's not like you say, okay, I'm retired, now I'm done, I'm, I don't work at anything anymore. No, that's not true. You work at being retired. You see, this is the new calling God has given you. And you take your priesthood into that new calling too. If you view your retirement as just an opportunity to serve yourself or to play, honestly, you're doing retirement wrong. There's nothing wrong with, pursuing, with not pursuing your former vocation anymore. It's a gift of God that you're able to transition into the new calling of retiree. But remember that you always carry that priestly calling with you into whatever you find yourself doing. <clears throat> you might be a retiree, but you never retire from kingdom service. And the truth is, if we're being really, if we're being really honest, you're not a retiree. Your new vocation is that you're a retiree priest. Right? And for all of us, let me just finish with this. There might be times when you are off duty as a policeman or a mechanic or a professor. But you're always serving as a priest in whatever you find yourself doing. 
That's how Jesus has chosen for his kingdom to be built, through you, through us. What a privilege, what a high calling, something to take seriously, but something to take with joy. What he has called us to do, he will equip us to do. And oh, he is so gracious. Praise be to his name. Amen.